Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we entwine your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Scopus Award runner-up Vivian Tan talks about recycling buildings. And Tim Baines talks with Virginia Shepherd about fun fungi. If only there was a use for all this extra carbon dioxide we're dumping in the air. And if only building materials could be recycled. Professor Vivian Tan from Western Sydney University won the runner-up Scopus Award for Excellence in Creating a Sustainable Future for her invention of CO2 concrete. I began by asking her, what is carbon dioxide concrete? We have recently invented CO2 concrete. CO2 concrete is uh, injecting carbon dioxide into the recycled aggregate for the concrete productions. Normally, if we're using the recycled aggregate just by itself, the strength is lower by 30%. By injecting carbon dioxide to produce CO2 concrete, the strength actually already merged virgin concrete and also have a 10% cost reduction. Before your invention, if people wanted to recycle concrete, they could do it, but it would be a third less strong, it'd be 30% weaker. But with your invention injecting the CO2, it's just as good. Yeah, exactly what I'm doing there, because uh, if we, there's a lot of people using recycled aggregate already and then to produce recycled concrete all over the world. But if we're just purely using the waste as the concrete materials, they cannot help in the performance. That's why I'm doing the invention and the technology improvement by injecting carbon dioxide in. And they just um, use, obviously, save the landfill space and also use the carbon dioxide that would otherwise it will go to the atmosphere and um, and then we produce the CO2 concrete that is as strong as what other materials can be and as cheap as well. And so there's obviously a chemical reaction. Mm-hmm. What is the new substance that the carbon that the CO2 with the old aggregate forms? What what do you call it? There's no secret in here to be honest. We have something called calcium hydroxide in the cement paste, in the old cement paste of recycled aggregate. We just add carbon dioxide in and become the calcium carbonate. Calcium carbonate is the one that can make the concrete strong. But the thing is how you can make more calcium carbonates. That will be the secrets that I'm doing. So you're making calcium carbonate by using carbon dioxide and where do you get the CO2? The CO2 is just from the Asmovia. As, at the moment, we bought it from um, the available shop, but what the BO, we call BOC, what BOC actually collecting from, and they are actually from collecting the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and then they try to do some of the treatment, and then they produce the BOC. And we use the BOC for the CO2 concrete productions at the moment. So is this a way to capture some carbon dioxide from waste emissions? Yeah, at the moment, yeah, what BOC is, they actually capture the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. But there's another kind of technologies in here as well. Like a lot of people try to use different ways to capture the carbon dioxide, but um, we didn't go through those technologies. We are actually using those already captured, and then we just use it for the concrete productions for this project. And what inspired you to start this project? 
I do recycled concrete quite a long time already. I started when I was a PhD student, which is about 18, 20 years ago. And I do different kind of inventions throughout my research period. I always feel like that why we have to put the waste into the landfill and the landfill is running out. What can we do with those waste? And what else we can do if we want to reuse it? That's not as easy as you could imagine if you just reuse the waste products. And uh, that is my actually my thinking behind it. Like I want to use the waste as good as the natural products. But the thing is, my also bottom line is I don't want to produce other type of waste when I'm doing producing production of these products and I also want to be cheap because otherwise the industry couldn't be able to pick it up to make the real impacts. And isn't there an urgent need to recycle the aggregate from demolished buildings? Because my understanding is that if you're creating concrete for buildings, it uses things like sand and we're sort of getting short of a lot of these ingredients if we keep using new materials every single time. Sand is the way typically examples that we are running out of it. But unfortunately, recycled aggregate is not as short. Virgin aggregate is not as shortage compared to the other materials. Because we do have the landfill space in Australia to put all the different damage to concrete waste there. But doesn't mean that you need to stop this research because one day sooner or later you will need that. And research takes some time for us to investigate as well. Tell me about the impact of your work. We started the work about two years ago, and actually this project got picked up by a company called Innovise in South Australia because they are running a commercialisation program, which is called Waste and Technology... I, I, I don't think I picked the name right. Um, yeah, uh, it's, it's running by Innovise, and then they run a commercialisation program. And that project was actually funded by the South Australian green industry as well. At that time that we start looking into the research projects actually can go further and trying to look at how can we actually commercialize the products because the products we are doing experiment at that time. What else we can do at the moment is really just experiment and we can do fantastic results but what else we can do and since have that we have actually have a startup company started in January 2018 called EcoBone and then and with Western Sydney University, they also provide a lot of support for me as well. They actually, we have a farm in Hawkesbury in our campus. And I start doing something that's about 40 by 50 centimetres slabs. We call it as a footpath. What I'm using it for is for people to enter and exit the farm and then they need to wash the boots. I mean, they clean the boots before they go inside and outside. But this year, March, we actually upgrade the CO2 concrete productions, become three meters by three meters. What, we that, what we're using that slab for is we actually are putting the cow drinking stations on top of it. And then the cow will stand on there to drink the water. You can see that each bull is about a ton weight and about five, six bulls actually can sit on the slabs to drink the water and that's why it's a weight test is about five six tons weight test on that and uh, we are actually looking forward to to keep producing further and um, we're also looking for some industry partners for the slabs um, we're actually already working with um Radiometric Concrete Australia and we're also looking into any other possibilities that we can go further with these CO2 concrete uh, implementations as well where will we be using CO2 concrete 
as I mentioned, CO2 concrete actually has already have a matching strength with a cost reduction as well. This CO2 concrete actually can use for anywhere that concrete needs, no matter it's low grade or high grade, you use building, making slabs or making columns, anywhere that concrete needs, this CO2 concrete should be able to compensate what we need as well, and in, a, in an economical way and environmental way. So we should be using it for everything because we've already got all the old concrete from all the buildings we knocked down. And if it's cheaper and just as good, why not? Exactly what I'm trying to promote at the moment. But at the moment, I have quite a lot of hesitation from the industry because we didn't really have a lot of productions, didn't really have that confidence that built up by the industry. But I would say that is the reason that Western Sydney University is helping me to put more implementation in, in the Hawkesbury farm at this stage. And also we're looking into partnering with a lot of companies to see whether we can do a lot more trials or um, examples or case studies to actually boost up the confidence for the industry to further use it. By talking about if we are using CO2 concrete compared to using the virgin materials, the difference is a long-term perspective. You may be thinking about, I just, we're using a little bit of waste, we can save a little bit of money, but what actually can go further? My, I have another kind of expertise is life cycle analysis because I like to look into the life cycle perspectives. If you want to talk about sustainability, it's always about life cycle perspectives. I've done the research related to if I using the virgin material compared to the CO2 concrete, the difference are huge because if you use the virgin materials, it will have the cost. But if you use the recycled materials, particularly CO2 concrete, we actually have the benefits from that. That means it's a positive compared to a big negative. There's a big gap in there. That is the reason that you can see we're using the recycled materials not only about saving the short-term perspective, it's more important, the long-term perspective as well. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Scopus Award runner-up Professor Vivian Tan from Western Sydney University. Recycling building materials and taking carbon dioxide out of the air to make stronger concrete. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. What's fun about fungi? Here's Tim Baines from deep within the Diffusion Archives, speaking with Dr Virginia Shepherd, who is working at the Department of Biophysics at the University of New South Wales way back then. I remember in one of my early high school science classes, the teacher was talking about the classification of living things on this planet. She said there was the kingdom of animals and the kingdom of plants, and I thought this was all pretty easy to understand because I had a good idea of what an animal and a plant looked like. Then the teacher kind of shuffled her feet coyly and said, and then there are fungi. My mind reeled at the thought that there could be a whole separate kingdom dedicated solely to these little spongy umbrella-shaped oddballs when I could think of gazillions of different types of animals and plants. To really understand this apparently glaring oversight, I guess you'd have to talk to someone who loves fungi, an expert like Dr. Virginia Shepherd from the University of New South Wales. How long have you been studying fungus? 
I've had a long-standing love affair with what used to be called the lower organisms, uh, probably since I was about 10 years old. What got you started at the at age of 10 into, into fungus and the lower organisms? Well, I think it actually started for me with a kind of what you might call a higher, organi higher organism called an ostracod, which is a kind of little crustacean that lives in ponds. And my brother and I collected some tadpoles and I noticed these little specks swimming in the water and it just went on from there. So I realised there's a world inside this one and it's more weird and strange than any surrealist could have ever imagined so uh, and then presumably someone gave you a microscope and it, it, yes, it was I all over I, I begged for a microscope my father got me a microscope and of course the ostracods were a bit big to look at under the microscope so I then got into much smaller things the protozoa and I've built on that to get into fungi and predominantly algae I think are my favorite favorite beasts uh, algae okay so Where's the fun in fungi? Where's the, the fun the in fungi? Or the algae you study? Well, you'd say the fun in fungi, imagine a world without them. Uh, we would have no beer, no Vegemite. Uh, no beer? <laughs> there would be uh, piles of feces as tall as buildings all around us, and you wouldn't be able to see them for all the logs of fallen trees that nothing could have decayed. So, yes, they they play a, a vital role. This, this is the importance of fungi. This is, this is why they're and important. The, and then there's nasty fungi as well, I imagine. There's, there's the uh, the fungus that ate my face. Yes, uh, they're, they're a fungi that... Uh, Unfortunately, uh, yeah. they can see the human body as a, as a food source and a surface to break down and uh, feed upon. And uh, oh, well, okay. So, what's some fabulous fungus? Uh, oh, sorry, this to be uh, a fabulous fungus. This is one anybody can probably find for themselves. You just need a few pieces of uh, wallaby dung or uh, cow poo or horse droppings, which have come from animals not in a stable, so eating grass outside. And people have probably even seen these. If you look at a piece of wallaby dung out in the bush and it's got like a white fur on the surface, you've probably seen this particular fungus. So you look at it closer up, it's called pilobolus, which means a hat tosser. Uh, and what you see is a, a transparent stalk with a nice swollen vesicle on top of that. And on top of that, what looks like a little beret, a little black beret, which contains the, the spores, hat. <laughs> the, the hat, and this is a remarkable thing: the swollen, uh, the swollen vesicle acts as a as a lens, and underneath that there's a little collar, a little yellow collar, which has got carotenoid pigments that can catch waves of light, and the light is focused onto this collar by the vesicle acting like a lens. And the effect of this is that the little polobolus bends towards the light to the point when the vesicle is actually shadowing the pigment and it bends no more it can build up a, a massive pressure it builds up a massive pressure inside itself mainly by having uh, sugars so it's got a lot of sugars uh, inside mm -hmm. this vesicle yeah. and the, the little stalk and when that explodes it finally explodes after it's bent to its fullest extent usually around noon i mean it, it follows a oh, specific take cycle. a long time it just is they, it a matter of hours it does this? It takes a little while. Overnight you can get the... Uh, yeah, but it's not like a month where it builds up and does it. It no, grows. you can grow it on a piece of toilet paper yourself. Uh, mm. The wallaby dung on that, bit of moisture and a light coming from one direction. So, so what happens to the hat? What happens 
Tell me about the hat. Well, this thing builds up this incredible pressure inside. The vesicle then uh, explodes and the hat is tossed. The hat containing the spores of the fungus uh, is tossed um, up to two metres, which is a long, long way for such a tiny thing to be tossed. Yeah. And it actually can uh, shoot a cow, so <laughs> <laughs> it can uh, pepper a cow with spores. But the main idea is that the spores will then hit some blades of grass. They've got a, a, a sticky mucilage goo on the surface. They stick to the grass, and another cow, wallaby, horse, herbivore, eats the grass. The spore it's, is resistant to being digested, it comes out in the next load of uh, poo, and the whole cycle starts again. A poo-loving, hat-popping fungus. Yeah, got it. <laughs> you could say a coprophagus, uh, a, a poo-eating. Uh, many fungi like to live on and uh, eat poo, and uh, thank heavens that they do. Tell me, okay, this is what's confused me from an early age. What is it about a fungus that makes it not an animal, not a plant, that something special that we have to, I mean, apart from the wonderful properties these organisms have is what's the essence of it that you know in the cells or, or what is it that well, makes it not well, like it any other animal uh, or plant it has its own kingdom uh, yeah. the mycota well they have actually in the past been poetically described as animals trapped in tubes uh, <laughs> but they are quite different to animals they're completely unlike plants uh, although they're usually studied uh, by people who are doing uh, botany and things like that. They're completely unlike plants, so they have no chloroplasts, so they can't photosynthesize, they can't make their own food, uh, they have to basically get it from their environment by eating uh, things which have already made that food. But I think, well, they, they live in, uh, the tubes they live in are made of chitin, which is the same stuff that uh, lobsters, claws... And chitin's a fabulous bit of material you find all over the place, isn't it? Indestructible, practically, yes. Is that the same thing as fingernails, or have I got that wrong? No, uh, no, that's a, this keratin. Keratin. Uh, yeah. Hey, I could get that wrong easily. They do sound alike, but... Uh, no uh, arthropods and uh, you know, insects and things will make their shell out of uh, chitin, and so do the fungi. And they form what is called hyphae. They're not really considered to be true cells in that sense. So they form these long, tip-growing, tubular structures, very, very tiny, I might say, uh, maybe 5 to 10 microns across, uh, which is... If you took a human hair and chopped it into a, maybe a hundred bits, you know, we're talking very thin, very small, and they grow only at the tips. So they have their own uh, older parts of themselves are left behind as they keep growing. So kind of like uh, a, a tree. I mean, this is or that's yes, left in behind way, uh, inwards. The xylem and phloem of trees are. That also uh, the roots and shoots also have a kind of tip growth. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. But the fungus, what else makes it special? Well, I guess if we talk about ourselves as animals, we have a fixed number of chromosomes. We are a diploid organism. We have two sets of chromosomes, one from mum, one from dad. And we, have, uh, we produce eggs and sperm. They then are reunited, and this leads to the growth of another human being. And it's quite different for the fungi. The most advanced kinds, or thought of as advanced, though I, I hate using these words, are the kinds called basidiomycetes. They're the ones that make what you see as a mushroom, the classic okay, mushroom. Okay, so is that the, the so is some part of the mushroom chitin there? Is that right? The whole thing is made up. That entire beautiful, incredibly complex structure is made up of the little hyphae all meshing around each other. 
so you get them all entwining to to build the uh, stalk and the gills and the and the little cap and because it does seem like there's different tissue in a mushroom there's a stalk like you say and oh, there's yeah. the gill and so forth but it's all one organism that just is forming different structures or well yeah and and uh, it's just these hyphae these incredibly little tiny hair like structures wrapped in cotton uh, that all enfold around one another and create these incredibly complex beautiful structures but what I was going to say there that makes them very different to animals is uh, in this sort of fairly advanced group the basidiomycetes you have a state called the dicarion that means there's a nucleus from mum there's a nucleus from dad but they never actually fuse and so the organism has these two nuclei always there uh, in the hyphae and every time it wants to grow longer it has to make a new cell wall and grow another you know a few centimeters into the ground it has to form this incredibly complicated little like a little elbow or a little arm called the clamp connection so that one nucleus can piggyback around the other and the new cell or not really a cell but the new bit of the hypha ends up with one nucleus from mum and one nucleus from dad and it's only at the very end of this process when the mushroom or the fruiting body comes up that at the end of the gills we have the actual little spores each of the spores has a nucleus either from mum or from dad and when they germinate they form what is called the monocarion and that is a hypha that has only the one nucleus and that must find a partner and fuse together with it so that's a, a haploid number of uh, that's a haploid state meets another meets another one spore, they one. fuse together and you get a new what is called a mycelium so when you have all the hyphae growing together in a in an organized body you have this thing called a mycelium these fungus they, they're like animals they're diploid is that right with well no I think this is this is one of the defining reasons why they're not animals that though in these very advanced ones you do get these two nuclei the nuclei never actually fuse together so it never becomes truly diploid and uh, that's why it's called uh, dicaryotic in the old days of early microscopists uh, they noticed some cells had uh, like a little nut inside it looked like a little hazelnut that was the nucleus and that's where the word carry on uh, comes from meaning uh, eukaryotes are the things that have have the nut and the prokaryotes have no nut which is actually the nucleus so when you have a, a dicaryon you have two nuts <laughs> or actually two two nuclei that, that never actually become one so the it's the identities of the two parents remain in the one organism but as separate things that's fascinating I didn't isn't, know where the, the carry on came from or the eukaryotic or prokaryotic I knew those names but didn't know where they were, came from and I might say mycelium can be massive so simply because they're under the ground and we don't really see them we only see the fruiting body that's the tiniest part really so the mycelium can go under the road it can connect all the trees in a forest for example in these situations that sounds huge one connected organism essentially one massive organism yeah and uh, I think the world record there is the well you know our society is obsessed with what's the biggest so a few years ago some people worked out that this it's actually a pathogen this honey fungus armillaria was the world's biggest organism they did a genetic analysis of the hyphae 
Armillaria hyphae in this particular area and found that this massive, well, creature, I like to think of it as, uh, kind of under the ground. The creature under the ground. You got it. Uh, Amalaria. Amalaria. Not uh, related uh, to malaria. Amalaria. Amalaria. Yeah. yeah, not related to malaria. Not okay. Just a fungus. Uh, you've probably seen it. It's actually very bad for trees and it kills them, unfortunately, but uh, it has a quite a bright yellow uh, fruiting body which will appear but you got to remember under the soil that could go for miles so they worked out that this particular beast this particular armillaria under the soil probably weighed about 10,000 kilograms Goodness. and it went for 15 hectares and it was probably uh, that's not mucking around is it? 1500 years old wow so it, uh, it's been there a long time it's been there a long time that was Dr. Tim Baines speaking with Dr. Virginia Shepherd about fungi from deep within the Diffusion archives. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Get this! If you sign up for Shopback at is.gd slash P-E-R-I-L-A, you get paid $5 and I get paid $5. We both come out ahead and you get big cashback discounts on your online shopping for brands like Amazon, eBay, AliExpress, and lots more. is.gd slash P-E-R-I-L-A Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker, or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2NVR in Nambucca Valley, 3NBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf. Support Diffusion by buying from the affiliate links at diffusionradio.com slash support. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. 
When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick, everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.